Hello, I'm Jolyon Rubinstein, professional funny man, idiot, and reader of scripts like this one. And I'm the journalistic babysitter of this podcast, James Ball, and you're listening to The New Conspiracist. This is a podcast that boldly goes where most people know better than to tread, because each week we take one specific conspiracy theory and a fantastic guest and we dissect it. What's the conspiracy? Who's behind it? What's the evidence for it? And most importantly, why the blooming heck do so many people believe in it? And then we settle, once and for all, whether it's fact or fake news. So whether you want answers on 9-11 or the Loch Ness Monster, on Benghazi, or whether Avril Lavigne died and was replaced by her body double, you're in the right place. Now this week, we have on a real-life superhero, Elliot Higgins, whose organisation Bellingcat can best be described as, well, the People's Intelligence Agency. Because whether it's tracking Russian tank movements or actually looking at spy networks around the world, Elliot has actually created an organization which uses open source technology and tools that you might just use on the internet to, I don't know, look at your friends' Facebook photos to actually get to heart of some of the biggest mysteries out there. And he's really getting up the nose at everyone from Vladimir Putin to Steve Bannon. So he must be doing something right. But James, what's the subject that we're going to be talking to Elliot about this week? So this week, we are going to look at what everyone seems to think is Russia's favourite poison, Novichok. What is it? How does it work? And did it really get used by two men who say they only went to Salisbury to admire its beautiful cathedral? Let's jump right in. Elliot's been at the forefront of a pretty kind of, in a way, it should just be obvious. And in another way, it's absolutely revolutionary form of journalism, which is called OSINT or open source intelligence. Um, And it's essentially trying to use information that's open to anyone, if you know where to look, to challenge misinformation, to challenge state narratives, and to bring the truth to light. And, um, you know, Elliot, who used to operate under the pseudonym Brown Moses, has uh, and, and the people working with him have helped uncover, you know, truths about how MH17 came down, about sort of Russian forces in Crimea, about poisonings, um, all sorts. Um, but it's probably better to let him tell you about it than... It is, isn't it? It is. So, Elliot, how, pop- how popular has your word work made you in certain yeah. quarters? <laughs> Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think the further east you go, the less popular I am. Uh, <laughs> Massive in East London, just not so big in Siberia. That's, that's true. Um, I, I mean, really, it was started as um, Bellingcat and well, the Brown Moses blog, which is my blog that led up to it, really started as um, me just really want, wanting to win arguments on the internet. And <laughs> um, I, I was someone who was kind of... I guess you could say extremely online and I spent a lot of time on the internet forums and um, because I'd kind of, my teenage years were bookended by the um, Gulf War and the uh, 2003 invasion of Iraq. So I had mm. a kind of very, uh, I guess, leftist perspective. I was reading kind of John Pilger and Robert Fisk and Seymour Hirsch and all these people who now think that I'm part of the CIA by the sounds of it. But <laughs> I kind of started off just, you know, just arguing with people online about what was happening in the um, Arab Spring in um, Libya in particular. And I was on the Guardian live blog comments and someone said, well, how do you know where this video is filmed? And I thought that's actually a good question. So I started mm-hmm. looking at satellite imagery of the area it was supposedly filmed in and then figured out you could look at buildings, structures, roads, other details to establish exactly where something was filmed. And I could go back and be really smug about it on the comments. So I did that for a while. And then I thought I'll start a blog. Just Really, it was to, just for myself. I was kind of an audience of one. And I just started writing stuff down that I thought was interesting people started reading it and um I, I was at that point it was early 2012 and i was focusing on the conflict in syria um i was doing a blog called the brown moses blog which was named after an online pseudonym i'd been using that i just picked randomly from a frank zappa song i was listening to at the time and then you know a year later i was explaining it on cnn what brown moses was but um <laughs> It just built up over time. I just was posting, kind of setting myself challenges to write something a day and finding these interesting videos from Syria. And I was like, oh, what's that bomb? And then I'd look up all these resources online about Russian bombs and discover exactly what it was and post about it. But 
I was one of very few people who was doing it. And we became this kind of tight knit open source community. And it was people from like Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, Keen Amateurs Online, uh, journalists from Storyful, for example. And it just grew and grew and grew until I launched Bellingcat in 2014. And um, three days later, um, Malaysian Airlines Flight 17 was shot down in eastern Ukraine. Mm. And that was just a huge catalyst, both for my own work in Bellingcat and the entire kind of open source investigation movement and that just kind of just built and grew from there i mean it is absolutely extraordinary the work you've been doing particularly just focusing on mh17 why don't you tell us a little bit about what happened uh, when you started to track what russia claimed was a ukrainian rocket launcher that had disappeared i believe it was was it on the 14th that it initially had disappeared and they said that it had or it vanished between the 14th and the 17th right it was one of the many tales they t- told but they 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 kind of like ask lots of questions and then look for people on the internet to answer it so um what happened on july 17th is mh17 was shot down over eastern ukraine um and right away, there was like this whole online community who was digging through images, searching for um, any clues to what could have happened. And the first things that kind of bubbled to the surface were videos and photographs of a uh, book missile launcher, which is a, um, a four, has four missiles on it. It's like a large tracked vehicle being uh, driven on the back of a uh, low loader truck through supposedly eastern Ukraine. So the first thing I started doing and this little community that was for me started doing is um, geolocating where they were taking, using clues in the photographs to figure out where they were taking. And we're not talking about metadata here, are we? We're talking about actual physical, what you can see within the image to an extent initially. Yeah, so th- there was one photograph It was supposedly taken um, in a town in eastern Ukraine. And um, you could see it was in what looked like a, a garage forecourt from taken from a car because you can see like the windscreen wiper and you could see the missile launcher on the truck but you could also see a shop and the shop had a name and um a researcher called Eric Toller, who at the time I think was a researcher at the Bank of America, he contacted me and said, uh, you know, I, I know your work and could you look at this and what do you think? And he kind of explained how he used that name to basically Google that name and uh, names of towns in eastern Ukraine and only found one match on a particular street in a town called Torres, where um, he found also by Googling the street name and Torres, a video of someone who'd been driving around filming on his dashboard camera the streets in that area because some people do that as a hobby in Russia and eastern Ukraine. And um, that showed the same location. And with all that video footage, you could prove exactly where it was filmed. And we did that with several images, photographs and videos. And that allowed us to have a route of this missile launcher. And then we could use clouds um, and, and shadows, rather, to find the exact time of day, because we can use shadows like a you know a big um, sun kind of uh, dial, effectively, yeah, and the time of day. So we had the routes, the approximate time it took place. And then from there, we started finding social media posts of people who, before MH17 had shot down, had seen this missile launcher being driven through their town and said, oh, I've just seen a missile launcher driving through my town. But that was time stamped. It said what their town was. And that allowed us to start verifying more details about exactly when this missile launch was being driven through the town. Um, and it just then kind of just grew and grew from there until we were able to show the missile launch had originated from Russia and, um, you know, had been, you know, almost certainly crewed by Russians, that Russia was heavily involved, not just in that one incident, but the entire conflict in Ukraine. Um, so that definitely put us on Russia's radar. So, so given 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 this is a conspiracy theory podcast, I think there's probably a, an elephant in the room we we need to address, especially because there is a practice in the intelligence community of um, if they find information, sometimes working backwards to find a different trail of where it came from, if there's a very sensitive source to protect, etc. And some people who are sort of relatively sensible notes that open source intelligence is a good way to do that. And some people who are a lot less sensible use it to suggest that um, anyone who's involved in OSINT is a CIA front or a front for someone else. Um, and it's completely impossible and ludicrous that people using computers in their basements, I don't know why the computers are always in basements, but in these kind of rants, they always <laughs> are. Um, you know, it's completely implausible that they could be doing this and it's just part of information operations by sinister uh, intelligence agencies. Now, I know this is a little bit like asking someone to prove a negative, but 
what do you say to the people who, you know, the, the more sensible end, if you were, if you would, of the paranoid people who go, well, look, this is all, even if it's well-intentioned and true information, isn't this all just a front for intel agencies? Well, I mean, outside of the people I either block or mute, um, usually... I mean, we we basically point to our transparent process. We and and the other thing as well with MH17, you had loads of people looking at this stuff. It wasn't just like Bellingcat finding this stuff and going, "Aha, we found it." It was a whole community of people online looking at these photographs, arguing over them, doing analysis. Some of it good, some of it bad. Um, so that in that case, it was really just because there was so many people involved. But we also show exactly how we came to our conclusions and the sources of our evidence. And it's always been a very kind of step by step process of how we work. There's also, you know, always people saying that we're funded by, you know, all these governments and we take all this money and we're kind of biased and stuff like that. But one thing we've done in Bellingcat recently is it started off as like a kickstarted, you know, crowdfunded uh, site with like £60,000 and myself and a small group of volunteers that kind of formed around MH17. Um, But now we're like a fully registered charity in the Netherlands. And that requires us to be really transparent about our finances, be audited every year by an external company. Um, And part of that was to kind of just be as transparent as reasonable about how we're funded and kind of how we're backed. It's like, Unlike some organizations, I am not like the king of Bellingcat. If I I can get fired by my supervisory board if I start doing stuff that's outside of uh, what Bellingcat's supposed to be doing or doing anything that's kind of dodgy. So um, I, I'm not someone who can just say, you know, I'm the king of Bellingcat, have my face on your Twitter avatars and, you know, worship me because I don't want to be in that position. Um, and it's always with Bellingcat about the community and the network and working together with other people and collaborating and sharing ideas and sharing information, not just saying, here's our special secret source and you can't know the recipe. Uh, I can certainly say that's a very different approach from um, an organization I used to work for, which uh, oddly Bellingcat has ended up with the same tagline as, which is an intelligence agency for the people. Um, you must have been aware that WikiLeaks used that tag before you uh, went for it yourself, too. I, I actually wasn't, and it just caused a huge amount of drama on Twitter. I... <laughs> There's definitely an irony about an intelligence organization not seeing a press briefing. Like, it's just, it's wonderful. Wonderful. It's just, I... <sighs> The, the kind of people who like Julian Assange generally really hate Bellingcat because they see it as, as being part of the CIA and stuff like that. And um, and and this has been a long term thing. I, it's never really been something I've like really. I'm not one of these people who kind of really got into him, just for no particular reason. So I, 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 I'm, I'm going to choose to take that personally here. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> leaking was good, but Assange himself was just not someone I was interested in as a person. So yeah. I was never one of these people who kind of listened to every single word he said. So I kind of thought, oh, intelligence agency for people. That's a clever idea. I'll put that in my book, and then. The, publisher said that's really good i'll put it on your cover and then i had loads of really really angry julian assange supporters <laughs> furious that the cia had stolen their you know his famous expression so i was You're like negging the like, messiah how dare you how dare you neg the messiah so i just i i have assange um muted on my words on twitter now because there's so many people who like are so angry about that and then i'm i'm, I'm often purposely confrontational when i get annoyed about stuff stuff like that so i thought no i'm i'm glad it's it's better than wikileaks now actually just so <laughs> Yeah. I am um, I want to I want to take this back for I've said many times on this podcast. It's a big podcast. It's a big tent. It's for everyone. And I'm going to say something which may initially sound quite weird, but I mean when I first saw your uh, uh TED talk that you did or TEDx talk that you did in Amsterdam, um something that really struck me was the similarities between the way you were tracing information and how you might partake in an ARG, an augmented reality game. And similarly, like when you're playing something as simple as Grand Theft Auto or the new Spider-Man computer game, you need to map the land around you in order to be able to see where you're going and where things have come from. And then I started finding out that actually in a past life, you were actually quite a big gamer. So do you think that some of this has has sort of affected the way you see digital information, how you can piece things together? I mean, I've been playing computer games since like the days of the ZX Spectrum when I was like five or six. So I think it's completely broken my brain in many senses. (laughs) 
<laughs> I see every, like even with the kind of release of the book, I'm kind of watching the kind of number go up obsessively of kind of the Amazon ranking, even though it basically means nothing. I'm just like, I, I'm, I'm fueled now by numbers going up or down in the right direction. Like yeah. it's just because I've been kind of, my brain's been completely broken by kind of computer games and high scores. But <laughs> I was, I've always interested in kind of puzzle solving. And in a way, this is kind of like a great big game where, you know, obviously with big consequences, but it is, solving a puzzle it's piecing stuff together but i was also really into online gaming so i was playing a lot of ultima online and uh, world of warcraft quite intensively and obsessively and then uh, but dealing with online communities as well and also being someone who spent a lot of time on the internet kind of going on the something awful forums you know being on there for like a really long amount like it's 20 years i think it is nearly now um but just being part of these online communities actually helped me understand both how you can find information and discover stuff, but also how other online communities operate and kind of the, um, what I call in the book, the counterfactual community, you kind of get drawn into conspiracy theories, often in opposition to the kind of the work Bellingcat is doing on things like MH17 and chemical weapon use in Syria. So I think in a way, having that kind of gamer online background actually did equip me with some of the skills that are actually quite useful now, not just in investigation, but kind of understanding online communities. Before we get into the actual topic of what this week's podcast is about, there is one other piece of sort of anecdotal information that I'd love you to sort of get across to people, which was when you realized that the the Russian intelligence services were using a screen grab from a computer game and saying that it was just, you know, presenting it as hard fact. And I think it's one of the only times ever that the Russian intelligence organizations have had to retract what they were saying and said, oh, sorry, actually, that that wasn't true. I mean, that does not happen very often. Yeah, and it was really funny when it happened and a very joyful moment. Can you explain to, can you explain to people like what happened in the context of it? Because uh, it's just such an amazing, amazing story. So um, the um, Russian Ministry of Defense published on several so social media platforms in Russian, Arabic and English a claim um, that um, US forces were shown in drone imagery to be supporting the retreat of ISIS um, so they could be kind of redeployed elsewhere in the Middle East, suggesting that basically the US was working with ISIS and using them as a tool for their Middle East policy, which is extremely conspiratorial. And it was backed up by four images. And I looked at one of the images and it looked really odd to me. I realized I'd seen it two weeks earlier, published by a journalist in India who was claiming it was US um, uh, predator drones attacking ISIS. So there's something up there, and I had checked at the time, and it was actually a video from a computer game. And um, I quickly searched for it. Looked like one of those kind of AC-130 gunship type things you get in like Call of Duty and stuff, which is you know gaming experience paying off at last. Um, so I searched for AC-130 gunship, and the first simulator and the first result was this game, which was the same video which the screenshot was from. It even had a big red fire button the Russians had cropped out of the picture. The other three videos were actually other drone footage from a Iraq uh, like a decade beforehand. They just stolen off the internet as well. So what Russia had presented was not irrefutable evidence. It was a screenshot from the computer game. And um, there was just global reporting on this because that Indian journalist who had seen it earlier, I'd responded to, and I, I kind of made a snarky tweet saying, oh, it's from a computer game and it's got 10,000 retweets. And as usual, you get about 200 retweets for something like that. But the people who follow me are the same people who follow the Russian Ministry of Defense. So within seconds, you had loads of people linking to the video saying you're lying. And of course, then or even the Russian media started, you know, taking the mickey out of the uh, Russian media for it. I mean, that's what's extraordinary. Yeah, Russia today doing an article on it. I mean, what the hell? Yeah, I mean, it was just, it was, I think, really humiliating. And then they took the pictures down and then basically said some civilian employee had done it by accident, even though these were carefully cropped, you know, screenshots from a video game. And then published these other images that were just like really poor quality. But that by that time, it didn't matter because like every newspaper, every news site in the world was reporting about Russia using um, computer game imagery in their uh, irrefutable evidence. What, what was it like when that happened? Was there a moment where the penny dropped where, my goodness, I'm on to something here? 
Well, with that one, it was like so quick. It's like I saw the tweet and I was like immediately like, hang on, this is the computer game video. And it, by the time I'd even tweeted that, like 10 other people had responded kind of the same way. But it just kind of blew up from there. And then people were like doing memes on it and kind of, you know, using other computer game imagery to like say Russia says this is tanks in Iraq when it's one like Defender from the 80s. And I mean, often Russia gets caught doing stuff and there's like no response. But what do we glean from this? Like, are we to glean that ultimately they just think we are so strong stupid in the digital age, that there's such a flood of information that these things are never really checked out. I mean, how, how, how often do you think things like this are taking place? I mean, Russia, I, I, I tell people if they want to practice doing online open source investigation, fact check a Russian press conference on conflict <laughs> because they'll use dodgy, like when they gave the press conference on the um, Scripple poisoning and they were showing satellite imagery of Port and Down, it was misstated and showing the wrong location. But to most people, they wouldn't realize that looking at that. Why would they check the date or the location? But you can just fact check this stuff and it's really good practice and then find out loads of it's untrue. Well, there you go, guys. If you want to become part of the Bellingcat family, you now know what your entry level sort of ARG game is that you need to play before you get it to Elliot. This is nicely dovetailing us into what this episode is properly about. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed with mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Now, we've looked at conspiracy theories. We've talked about Russia before in the past. But James, there was one particular incident, wasn't there, that, that captured sort of you know, British imagination in a horrific way, wasn't there? I would say it's not necessarily one particular incident as perhaps one particular chemical. And I, I would say, you know, it, it's got to come down to uh, there's there's something about Novichok. Um, now, this is the toxin that was used in the poisoning of uh, the Scripples uh, in, in the UK, which, uh, you know, then reportedly, well, led, did lead to the death of um a poor woman whose uh, partner discovered it completely innocently. Um, it's also the uh, poison responsible for um, gravely injuring Alexei Navalny, who is now in jail in Russia, seemingly for the crime of surviving his assassination. Um, but lots of questions end up posed about Novichok, uh, not least, uh, and you know, perhaps the most common of them being you know, if this is some super subtle poison used by professional spies, why do we keep catching it? Um, we also end up with the questions of, well, how do we know that the two Russians in town weren't just, as the uh, editor of Russia Today uh, said, um, you know, a gay Russian couple off to see the spire? Um you know, why does the poisoning happen so close to Port and Down? You know, everything seems to happen close to Port and Down, where we do biological and chemical research. Um, and, you know, perhaps biggest of all, how come people keep getting poisoned by Novichok and surviving? Um, and so you've got all sorts of mysteries uh, around these. Um, you know, and perhaps the final one is, uh, as Jeremy Corbyn called for... Uh, at the time, why couldn't we just send the samples of Novichok to Russia so they could tell us whether they were poison or not? Yeah, extraordinary moment. I mean, it's hard to sort of, you know, because so much has taken place since then. But at the time, there was a furious debate, wasn't there, about this? I mean, it became such a huge part of sort of public imaginings. Elliot, when did you first, what was your first sort of connection with the story? When did you first hear about it and what happened? It was really when um, the identities of the suspects were first revealed by British authorities because um, at that time, 
there wasn't really that much information up until that point. We didn't have photographs. We didn't have names. And then shortly after that, um, information was published by a Russian news site that um, was basically the, the um, uh, flight manifest with their passport number and some other details. Our colleague, Christo Grozev, he's been doing a lot of research on stuff related to Russia, and he's very familiar with the um, basically the Russian black market for data. Because Russia is a police state, but it's also an incredibly corrupt police state. So you can go on internet forums and find just you know, like through a simple google search we're not talking the dark web here find people just selling things like passport details databases i mean even like 10 years ago you could go to like a russian market and find cds with like government databases on them that you could just buy so there's this massive amount of data leakage so christo started thinking how he could figure out you know details about these people and he was looking them up on some of these leaked Russian databases, like car registrations, house registrations, and he found their names, and there, there weren't like many people with the same name, and they just appeared from nowhere several years earlier. They just didn't exist, and then they exist in all these databases, um, which was highly suspicious. So he decided he would go off, um, and he's a volunteer at Bellingcat, I should point out as well, so he does this for fun. Um, he decided he would go and buy the um, domestic passport registration file for one of the suspects and we got this the same day i think of the russia today interview because we were like waiting to watch this and at the same time we got this file through and it was the same photograph of the person who was on russia today saying i'm a sports nutrition salesman but on the file the page that basically has all his previous data was blank and that's incredibly unusual for these files it had a stamp on that said call the russian ministry of defense at this number if you kind of uh, see this file it had a marking that suggested it was part of the secret service and loads of mis missing data like his previous passport number which should have been there and that really pointed there was something suspicious about this guy i mean we also learned from the flight manifest that his passport was only number was only a few numbers different from his friend wow. um, which is also incredibly suspicious and we got the id of him his friend and the people with the id numbers in between and they all had these same weird markings on it and it looks like the um, gru when they're arresting these fake identities were doing them in batches so you had all these really clear signs that it was being faked and we basically published I, I love how mundane that is as a tell <laughs> yeah. though because it's very believable but it's also that would never make the spy movie because you'd just be like <laughs> oh come on they've got the resources why would they be so stupid as to make them consecutive numbers uh, and yet this is the kind of thing that happens isn't it it feels like W1A but in the intelligence services doesn't it it's, it's endless as well I mean this was just the first weird kind of unbelievable thing we came across because we, the great thing was the Russia Today interview was kind of you know big news, obviously in the UK. And the following day, we were able to publish this guy has got a really shady kind of you know this really clearly indicates he's part of the intelligence services. And then over the preceding weeks, we were able to um, not only find more details of their fake identities, but find their real identities, which indicated they were um, you know heroes of Russia, the Russian Federation, um, which is the highest award you can get, and is presented by Putin himself personally who had just said he didn't know who they were and also their actual real identities and that they were GRU officers um, and this was all through trawling for all that kind of leaked data and some open source data as well let's just let's just go back there because I mean that is a huge thing to discover isn't it I mean how did you when you say you discovered the, their real identities, which eventually led to you quite literally unmasking these people. What was the actual process that was taking place there? How did you go from the fake identity to the real identity? So um, there were basically two separate methods we used. Um, Christo, he had um, worked on um, looking at the Montenegro coup. There was a failed coup in uh, Montenegro. And one of the people who was arrested, who was believed to be a GRU officer, was arrested with two identity documents. And um, they had certain similarities. I think it was the same place of birth, birth date, and first name. And Christo thought maybe this is the pattern that will work for the Scripple suspects. So he started searching through all these Russian government databases for people who had the first name, date of birth, and place of birth as the two suspects and their fake identities that there was kind of more information about now. Um, for one suspect, he found about 
10 or so matches and he started going through them one by one with different kind of you know second names until he established their kind of online profiles so he had photographs and real profiles for the, most of them but one of them didn't have any of this he didn't exist online whatsoever so he started digging into him and he managed to find um get more um images photographs of the person from you know official russian documents and it was the same guy who was posing under another identity on russia today so we had that guy's identity but that didn't work for the other guy so with him we kind of did a kind of profile of okay if he's a gru officer and he's working abroad where would he likely have been trained and when and it, we basically narrowed it down to one possible location who kind of are, are known for training these kind of people. And then we started going basically through the class records, looking for someone who would have been about the same age of the look of the guy in the picture. And we hoped the date on the passport, the fake passport, was close to his real age. And that just gave us a very small list of suspects. And we started digging through that until we were eventually to, able to find the person in question. Um, and like his um, training academy had his picture on the wall in their kind of academy museum as well. Unreal. Here in Russia. And that was found through like some social media posts someone made after they visited the museum. So all these little clues were out there, both through these leaked databases and just what people were sharing on social media. I think it's one of the, you're one of the only instances I can think of, particularly in the making of the the two series so far of this podcast, where it feels like there's some real positives from social media for the people, you know, for the little people, because mm. people are leaving this trail of breadcrumbs, which is for the trained eye, uh, you know, a, a sort of a thread to towards the truth, right? Yeah, I mean, if you, you kind of know how to piece this stuff together, and it's not hard, um, you can find some like really incredible stuff. I mean, you're, you're not blowing your own trumpet. It doesn't seem easy, I'll be honest. Searching through GRU databases doesn't seem like the easiest thing in the world to do. I mean, you need to know Russian, that helps. But <laughs> um, it, it's not like you're you know trying to land a you know a plane on an aircraft carrier in a rough sea. It's not like that hard. It's it's A lot of it is more just sitting down and digging through the information and in a way um online open source I'm, I'm really reassuring there it's slightly easier than one of the most famously difficult maneuvers <laughs> in all of the military always rocket science but it, it, it's really about having understanding the tools you have available and it's it, tools i'm talking about aren't like these fancy you know investigation platforms it's like google search and knowing how to do a good Google search and knowing that you can search on other platforms as well, like Yandex, which is more focused on kind of Russian language stuff. It's like you see a problem and you just kind of think about the kind of process flow you have using the different tools. And if that one doesn't work, you move into another kind of process using these tools. And then if you exhaust them all, you're stuck. But usually you can find a result if there's a a result possible to find from what you're looking at. Um, But that actually taught Christo and our team how to investigate Russian spies, because we then realized there was a pattern of behavior of how they faked identities, which if you're a spy is really bad because, I mean, we, we looked into another incident um, sometime later where the OPCW was hacked by a uh, GRU team and we managed to figure out the real, real identity of one of them by doing a reverse face search on wow. uh, Yandex and um, got his home address or where his car was registered to and he'd registered it to the GRU building in St. Petersburg along with 305 other people. And this was like a list of just, just on a Russian database had been list of 305 people who registered their car to the GRU headquarters probably so when they got pulled over or they got traffic fines they wouldn't pay them because then no one would want to make a GRU officer pay a traffic fine or you know, <laughs> them. while we're sticking on the GRU you know identifying uh, one obsessive would be Novi- uh, Novichok assassins uh, you know you could say his fortune but um, you've actually played a hand in identifying Two sets of Novichok assassins, have you not? Yeah, so um, the Scripple poisoning suspects, there was actually a third suspect who was identified, and we looked into him. Um, he was linked to the another poisoning in Bulgaria in 2015 of an arms dealer who fell mysteriously ill and went into a coma, as did his um, son and his business partner. Um, And we discovered that he was part of another team from the same GRU unit of eight people who had been watching this guy before he was poisoned. Um, That then led us to a um, secret Russian nerve agent program as you do. Uh, and then uh, that led us to the Navani poisoners because they were in contact with the FSB team who poisoned him. And then it just kind of all just opened up. Goodness me. 
what is your um, take right now? Because obviously we are going slightly off topic. We'll bring it back to Novichok in the end. But uh, at the time of recording, the huge national protests um, uh, in, in support of Navalny have taken place. And it seems that he's now been banged up for three years um, you know, as James was saying earlier, really for not dying. What's your take on what's taking place in Russia right now? I mean, I think there's a lot of factors involved with this. I mean, there's there's issues in Russia with the economy and stuff like that, and you know, young people not really feeling they have any any hope for the future. But then, you know, through the work of Navalny and other people in Russia, seeing that you know Putin is building a kind of one billion dollar palace on, you know, in this huge area of land in Russia, um, and that leads them to obvious frustration. And Navalny has become kind of a flashpoint because not only because you know he was poisoned, but the fact that you know we at Bellingcat were able to show that this was an effort. SB poisoning. Saying that, though, only a small percentage of Russians actually believe that's the case. I think it's like around 10, 15%, because there is so much propaganda, so much disinformation, and so much distrust um, you know, of the West and kind of, you know, plenty of Russian officials and news people saying that we're, you know, part of the CIA or MI6 or the British Deep Establishment. Wow. Um, and it makes it very hard to break through to that. But there is a kind of growing anger. And we're discovering it wasn't just Navani who was poisoned. There were um, activists working in the Caucasus region, quite minor activists who were followed by the same team and fell mysteriously ill. A member of the kind of official Russian opposition, the allowed opposition, who also died after falling mysteriously ill after being followed by the same team. Yesterday, we just published another major Russian opposition figure who fell into a coma twice after a mysterious illness, had been followed by the same FSP team just before that. We've got at least, I think, four other cases that includes very kind of minor and non-political figures who were followed by the same FSB team and either died after falling into a coma or recovered after falling into a coma just after they were being followed. So this isn't just about one guy being you know, targeted for assassination. It's about loads and loads of people being targeted for assassination by the Russian government. Mm. And that's when it starts getting like really scary. And we do wonder what impact that's going to have on you know, inside Russia when they're thinking about this, because it isn't just, you know, a big political opponent of Putin. It's really kind of minor people who aren't even really anywhere at the level where they're the threat to Putin directly. They're just difficult people. Does what you're saying kind of help address the question of how come, you know, most people will only know about the Scripple poisoning and the Navalny poisoning. So, you know, how come this deadly nerve agent, everyone who's poisoned by it survives? Would would you point to these other deaths and possibly others we don't know about as being the explanation for that? Yeah, I mean we've we've got at least um, three that we've published about so far, which are you know confirmed deaths. I mean we, we can't say for certain they're Novichok because we don't we only have kind of the travel data we've tracked these people being followed. Um, the other thing we discovered during the kind of discovering the nerve agent program is they shut down the supposedly shut down the nerve agent program when uh, the chemical weapons convention came into force. Then moved all the researchers basically to new facilities, which funnily enough were um, supposedly developing sports nutrition. So I, I guess the uh, Scripple suspects were kind of truthful when they said they worked in sports nutrition. Um, <laughs> they were door-to-door salesmen, it sounded like. Um, but we discovered there that they were working on technology and they published papers, the scientists involved, on something called nano-encapsulation. And that is used in kind of beauty products to basically delay the release of um, you know chemicals in these products. And it seems like they developed that to delay the release of Novichok. So a lot of people are saying, why didn't they die instantly? But this seems like it could be the explanation to why there was this delayed reaction to the Mm. poison. But then it does kind of challenge, you know, it's hard to know about Novichok because this isn't something that has been really, really used widely or studied well. So it's hard to know, you know, what the actual correct dose is from you know public records that just information doesn't exist so we don't know if there's like a very narrow range that they're trying to target to make it look like so they don't die instantly um like navani was going on this flight and they would have known he was going on this flight and if it wasn't for the fact the plane turned around and he got immediate medical treatment he definitely would have died wow so i i mean the this this was not a, a sort of commonly used poison before sort of recent years was it as i recall um basically most of what we knew about its lethality was either theoretical or based on uh, one Russian scientist who'd accidentally exposed himself to it and I think survived, but with quite debilitating injuries. And I mean, we should say that the people who survived, some of them 
do have debilitating injuries. You know, we don't quite know the condition of the Scripples, but uh, all the reports suggest the senior, uh, you know, the Scripple himself, the form, the former spy, is is not in the best of health since it. But it's it's sort of it's not like this was one. Um, a, a, a poisonous agent that was in widespread use ever, is it? No, and th- this is the thing. I mean, I, I think people are drawing conclusions on actually a very limited amount of data points, but that kind of is what conspiracy theorists do anyway. So, um, you know, often when there's these arguments about, oh, well, how come they didn't die instantly? They don't know anything about this nano encapsulation. They've never heard the word before. So it's not part of their kind of, you know, argument. They can't use it in, in their argument. And if you bring it up, of course, they dismiss us because we're Bannon and we're part of the CIA. But it, it's, um, you know, people are having debates about this on extremely limited facts and not they don't understand because we've only discovered over the last two years and you know a lot of this recently that there is this wide-scale russian kind of nerve agent assassination program happening which in itself sounds like a conspiracy theory and i like to think we've got enough evidence to prove it but i do understand when you say that someone looks at you and thinks you're either mad or a spy so this is why we go to such lengths to kind of explain how we've come to our conclusions and why we believe these things Look, there's two things I, I think it's really important to to deal with here. One is, you know, talking about, you know, uh, the, the conspiracy theory around you working for the CIA. But before we come on to that, you know, Elliot, you're doing things that, you know, I, make, I used to make this television show, The Revolution We Televised. We used to go and do stunts on, you know, politicians. And it was, you know, it was intense stuff. What you're doing is actually unmasking intelligence officers and bringing some of the scariest organizations in the world to task. What effect has had that had on your life? I mean, do, do you fear for your life? I always say I fear for my life. I mean, I'm slightly concerned. I mean, I have had the um, UK counterterrorism police kind of come and have a chat with me about my personal safety and, uh, you know, give me a leaflet about what I should do now that I'm, you know. Give you a leaflet? <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically, it's, it's, it's quite a, it, it's more of a small booklet, but it's uh, <laughs> still, it, it's not the most reassuring thing in the world. And like Christo as well, he's, you know, he's under like serious, you know, threat now. Um, and it's, the thing is, it's not just about the Russian spies and the Russian intelligence services it's about the kind of lunatics who've been convinced that we're are part of the cia or mi5 or mi6 well, let's talk about that how did that how did that actually start look because i mean when you were talking about people like john pilger or you know people like that luminaries of the left questioning whether you are actually an agent of the american state i mean that's, that must have been quite a shock no the thing is it kind of has happened so gradually and it's it's always been something that even when i was doing like the brown moses vlog you had people online who were kind of part of the pro acid kind of anti-imperialist in quotation marks um community who are like saying oh well this must be spy agency stuff it's mm. just that was over time you know as those communities have grown around specific subjects we've kind of worked on at Balancat and i worked on previously um that's just become kind of part of their dogma really it's their deep held beliefs that were part of that mm. um but then russia kind of started amplifying some of those messages or repeating those claims after you know the um scripple investigation we had the russian ambassador to the uk give a press conference where he repeatedly claimed we are part of the british deep establishments god knows what that is but also um, (laughs) working with and paid for by the british intelligence services so i mean jolian i think you might be the only person on this podcast who's not accused of that because um louise mentioned her band of citizen journalists are um convinced (laughs) they have good evidence i'm a paid up uh, agent of the russian state um and then british wikileaks supporters uh, say, in fact, WikiLeaks itself has publicly alleged I'm an MI5 asset or agent, oh, uh, whereas the, the Americans say that it's very obvious that I'm in the pay of the CIA. I'm so I'm taking three paychecks here. You know, I don't know about you two. I think the reason is that neither of you has actually dressed up in full PVC, uh, pretended to be from an internet porn station in Amsterdam, and then tried to turn <laughs> MI6 into, you know, the biggest torture club in town with a red rope and loads of people dressed um, uh, you know, like they're just about to go to Torture Garden. I think that's probably <laughs> why they don't think I'm a spy. <laughs> Hiding in plain sight, are you, Joel? I should do that in my next presentation. <laughs> <laughs> Elliot, um, I want to ask you about the the sort of the the other regular conspiracy that floats around with Novichok, which is uh, it has did end up coming up with coronavirus as well, which is that anytime anything comes up with 
a chemical agent or an illness or anything. The first thing Twitter seems to do is measure how many miles away from Port and Down it happened. Um, why this fixation with Port and Down? And, you know, would you ever feel the need to look into it to properly be able to dismiss it? Or is it something you shrug out of hand? I, I think it's just an easy thing for people to do. It's like something they can latch onto and say, oh, it's, it's 20 miles away. Therefore, there must be some sort of connection. Of course, the uh, army nurse was also involved with it as well. So that kind of feeds into that kind of paranoia. But given just the vast amount of information we have and the detail of it as well, it, it, it just seems really kind of silly. I mean, it, it just like... It, Everything about the Griffel suspects, everything about the story is insanely suspicious. It's not just that that team was linked to one nerve agent poisoning, but another one. And that was linked to Russia's secret nerve agent program. And we've got, you know, we have the receipts. We've got detailed phone records of these people calling up people who manufacture Novichok, who are Novichok scientists before the poisonings. It's like... Oh, but it must be Port and Down. I'm sure, and there's like no other evidence beyond the distance between Port and Down and the site of the incident. Whilst on the other hand, we literally have phone calls of them calling up poison chemical weapons experts, Novichok experts, multiple times before the actual attacks occurred, which to me is suspicious at the very least. It's extraordinary. And on your, um, I, I'm minded to, to make sure people know you you have a podcast that is extraordinary as well. And I think, um, I think it was in episode five where you went the whole way through piecing together the view of what happened on MH17 from the perspective of those uh, involved in potentially firing the rocket. Can you just explain to people what, what, what that podcast is and, and how they can listen to it? Yeah, so we have um, something called the Bellingcat Podcast, um, which is basically, there's two seasons so far, we're hoping to do more, um, where the first season is looking at MH17 and it's six parts. And the first four parts basically tell the story from our side, the investigation side, and uh, you know the people who are kind of involved on the ground, the journalists. But because during the investigation, there were lots of um, audio um, published by the um, Ukrainian intelligence services and the um, Joint Investigation Team, which is the official criminal investigation centered in the Netherlands. And we did a lot of analysis of this because some of these people, initially, they didn't know who they were, and we figured some of this out. So what that allowed us to do is first tell the story from our perspective in the first four episodes and then switch the perspective and use the phone calls and other information about the separatists of them discussing what was happening and say, these are the people who are involved. So we could tell that entire story from the perspective of the perpetrators, which is something like a really unique thing that we're able to do in that case. So in a sense, with all this leaked data we've got, we have the travels of the Scriffle suspects and the Navani you know, FSB poisoning team. And we've got like... We've got phone. We've got their entire phone logs. Some of them for the past two years, like every phone call they've made. That is insane. And it's not just who they've called; it's their data transfer. You know how big the files were, the mobile phone towers they were connecting to, so that we know where they were. We have all the people they called. We can tell who the girlfriends are and who the wives are based on their wow. being the top two people they call. Like sometimes you see them calling their wives, calling their girlfriends, and then calling their wives again, where they're. <laughs> 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 but it, it's just like all there in immense detail. And it means like with these kind of interceptive phone calls with the MH17 story, we can kind of tell the story from the perspective of the poisoners because we know exactly where they were and when they were there. So what do you think, because we've got to wrap this up shortly, but what do you think the future is for the type of journalism that, you know, Bellingcat is so at the forefront of? Well, I, I think we're seeing more and more organisations doing it. So like the New York Times and the BBC are doing a lot with this kind of investigation. Um, and because of the January 6th stuff, I think more US news organisations are realising you can do a lot with this kind of content. Mm. Um, alongside that, we're actually working a lot with um, groups like the International Criminal Court and lawyers focused on things like Yemen um, to build a methodology for archiving and investigating that's kind of focused towards um, kind of justice and accountability proceedings. So that rather than like what happened with MH17, when we were asked to be part of the, like, the European Court of Human Rights case, we had to basically redo the entire investigation, but in a different kind of court orientated style. Mm. We just do it like that the first time around. And we make sure the material is archived rather than with MH17, where we are desperately searching for dead links on old archiving sites or screenshots someone took of them. So it becomes more systemized. And then that's something we'll teach to other people. And hopefully it'll cause this whole kind of movement to grow bigger and bigger and bigger and have more people 
people doing it. Well, I think it's extraordinary. I think you're a, you know, an ex- extremely brave man and a, you know, a, a really pioneering force. I think anyone... He never says this about me, you know, I'm quite jealous. I knew he was going to do this. <laughs> I do a bloody podcast with you, all right? I must have some sort of like, you know, we go to festivals together, okay? I mean, look, there's, there's a lot of love there, right? I think that the, 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 what you're doing, particularly as someone who, you know, the revolution we televised as a show was was basically repackaging hard journalism. And I think something that's been the most worrying in the Trump era is that feeling that doubt has been weaponized, that, you know, millions of pounds and rubles and dollars have been spent confusing people, making it very difficult to piece together what happens and when. And when I was watching at the time of recording the uh, the, the, the the impeachment trial uh, is taking place in the Senate uh, for, for Donald Trump's second impeachment, and the way that they're utilizing information using tweets, using videos, uh, it, it's, it, it seems that they're almost learning from you. I sort of feel that the, the way that people are trying to frame narrative time and all of the interactions with the social media data points and stuff, it's a fairly new thing for boomers. And what you're doing is really pioneering. What, what other advances, Elliot, can people look forward to seeing in the future? What's gonna, what new data streams will start being very important? Well, one thing that we're getting a lot more now is more satellite imagery um, becoming available. And that's very useful for the kind of investigation we do, especially in conflict zones. You can now get medium resolution imagery every single day from places like Planet Labs, which is really useful. I think a lot of it now is, um, you know, we have these massive databases of videos from places like Syria, and it's using machine learning and AI to identify certain kinds of videos. And there's already been work done to have tanks identified or cluster munitions, because when you're dealing with a million in videos and you're looking for a cluster munition you need a bit of help so this development of tools and technology around it is going to advance and really i think we're really still at the tip of the iceberg for what's possible with online open source investigation and i hope as interest builds both in the work of bellingcat and the kind of whole field we'll see more and more investment in developing technologies about to make this better and more investment hopefully in those of us who do the investigations mm. Well, listen, we've come to that part of the show uh, where we have to decide once and for all, was Novichok a conspiracy or is it real? And James, I'm going to ask you to start today. I mean, on, on this one, it's got to be both. There was a conspiracy to poison the people with Novichok. It happened. Um, it's just, for me, the evidence does point, you know, conclusively uh, towards Russia as the perpetrators. Uh, I think, you know, when when the other side can produce evidence as detailed as uh, Elliot and the Bellingcat team have, you know, maybe I'll change my mind. So, Elliot, I mean, obviously, given that you're a CIA shrill, you know, it's going to be really easy to dismiss your your answer to this. But what's your theory? Do, do you believe this is a, a conspiracy or do you think it was true? Well, uh, again, it is true and a conspiracy because it's a conspiracy by the Russian Federation. To, this is going to make me sound insane. It's a conspiracy <laughs> by the Russian Federation to run a secret nerve agent program uh, in violation of the Chemical Weapons Convention and using that nerve agent for both an international and domestic assassination program. Hmm. Uh, so that's reassuring. It's it's good when the truth can make you sound madder than the uh, conspiracist, isn't it? Genuinely bleak moment. If you ever want to just go into, you know, writing television, it's a pretty good premise for a drama on Netflix. Well, we'll, we'll uh, have to see what comes out of that. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, thank you so, so much. Now, before we go... Elliot, where can one people find Bellingcat? Two, when's the book coming out? And three, how can they get involved? Um, so We Are Bellingcat is out um, currently in the UK and uh, Finland for some reason. Uh, it's coming to the US uh, at the start of March and the Netherlands and Germany through the rest of uh, February. You can go to bellingcat.com uh, and follow us at Bellingcat on Twitter. Um, and yeah, um, yeah, you can kind of find the book anywhere. Amazing. Well, listen, thank you so, so much for uh, coming on the podcast. Please, guys, if you've enjoyed the show, please do like, share and subscribe. I know it's boring that I say at the end of the show, but I only do it for the hardcore of you that are listening to it while you're on your run or your jog. So from me, Jolly and Rubenstein, thank you so much. Elliot, thank you so, so much. Will you come back on the show and tell us how it keeps going as, as the years progress? Absolutely. 
Fantastic. Um, well, for me and James Ball, uh, I'm guessing that's a goodbye from us. Uh, you can follow me though on Twitter at JamesRBUK and Jolyon at Jolyon Rubes, which I initially thought didn't say Jolyon Rubs, but I'm dyslexic, and that's actually what it says. Uh, so thank you so much for uh, listening to the new Conspiracist. We'll be back next week. Bye bye. 